Ezekiel chapter 24. Ezekiel chapter 24. And the title tonight is Symbol of the Cooking Pot. The Symbol of the Cooking Pot. In chapter 24, here in 24, it closes the section of the book that focuses on the destruction of Jerusalem, which was covered in chapters 4 through 24. And this chapter is divided into two parts. First part is a parable about a boiling pot, covered in verses 1 through 14. And the second part is another action sermon, and it involves the sudden death of Ezekiel's wife, covered in verses 15 through 27. And after that, Ezekiel deals with God's, na- God's judgment on the Gentile nations from chapter 25 through chapter 32, and then his wonderful promises of the people of Israel from chapter 33 to chapter 48. So verses 1 through 14 covers the parable of the boiling pot. So let's begin with verses 1 through 5, chapter 24, and it reads, Again, In the ninth year, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, that is Ezekiel, saying, Son of man, another name for Ezekiel, write down the name of the day this very day. The king of Babylon started his siege against Jerusalem this very day. And utter a parable to the rebellious house and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Put on a pot, set it on, and also pour water into it. Gather pieces of meat in it every good piece, the thigh and the shoulder, fill it with choice cuts. Take the choice of the flock, also pile fuel bones under it, make it boil well, and let the cuts simmer in it. Let me read you those verses from the New Living Translation for a little, and make it a little easier uh, to understand what it's saying there. So God is telling Ezekiel to tell the people to put a pot on the fire and pour some water in it. He says, fill it with choice with pieces of choice meat, the rump and the shoulder, and all of the most tender cuts. He says, use only the best sheep from the flock and heap fuel on the fire beneath the pot and bring the pot to a boil and cook the bones along with the meat. In the parable, a cooking pot was placed on a fire and choice pieces of meat were put into the cooking pot for cooking, verses three and four. These pots were usually made out of clay, But this one is made out of bronze, it says in verse 11, or copper. And the meat was put in the pot, and the pot was brought to a boil, it says in verses 3 through 5. The cooking pot represented Jerusalem. The meat in the pot represented the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And God said, make it boil, in verse 5. To make it boil means cause its boilings to boil. Now, this was a reference to the fierceness of the Babylonian attack on Jerusalem. Look at verses 6 through 8 now. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Woe to the bloody city, to the pot whose scum is in it, and whose scum is not gone from it. Bring it out piece by piece, on which no, on which no lot has fallen. For her blood is in her midst. She set it on top of a rock. She did not pour it on the ground to cover it with dust, that it may rise up, uh, that it may raise up fury and take vengeance. I have set her blood on top of a rock that it may not be covered. Jerusalem here is called the bloody city again. It was called the bloody city in chapter 22, verse 2. 
There's a pot, and there's scum in the pot, Ezekiel says. The pot is the city of Jerusalem. The citizens are in the pot, and it's their sin that is the scum that's in the pot. Now, we've heard that expression. We've heard people say of other people, they're the scum of the earth. Well, that's what God is saying here. The sin is the scum. You know, do you want to know what, what God says here? He says, our sin, my sin, is the scum of the earth. You know, we're all in the same pot. The pot of Jerusalem is the pot of the world for you and me today. Our sin is the scum of the earth. And, you know, I don't know how it could be said more clearly than how God said it here through Ezekiel. Jerusalem's bloody crimes were in its midst. And they didn't even try to cover their bloody crimes, according to verse 7. Their lack of concern for covering the blood of people killed was more proof of their cruelty and the heartlessness of the people since the law required that the blood of a sacrifice be covered up in Leviticus 17, 13. God pointed out Israel's insensitive disrespect for the sacredness of human life. And God vowed to save the bloodstains by putting them on top of a rock. And that blood that he put on the top of the rock would be a witness to the city's guilt, according to verse 8. So in spite of the destruction brought by the early stages of the exile, the guilt of the city still remained. Jerusalem hadn't even tried to cover their, the, the crimes, their murder, the violence in their midst. And there was such a total disregard for God's law that to them, human life didn't need much. And we see that a lot of that happening today. They were unashamed. They were disobedient of the law. They deliberately provoked the righteous anger of a holy God. Verses 9 through 14. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Woe to the bloody city! I too will make the pyre great. Heap on the wood, kindle the fire, cook the meat well, mix in the spices, and let the cuts be burned up. Then set the pot empty on the coals, that it may become hot, and its bronze or copper may burn, that its filthiness may be melted in it, that its scum may be consumed. She has grown weary with lies, and her great scum has not gone from her. Let her scum be in the fire. In your filthiness is lewdness, because I have cleansed you, and you were not cleansed. You will not be cleansed of your filthiness anymore, till I have caused my fury to rest upon you. I, the Lord, have spoken it. It shall come to pass, and I will do it. I will not hold back, nor will I spare, nor will I relent. According to your ways and according to your deeds, they will judge you, says the Lord God. So the subject here is, again, God's response to the bloodshed of Jerusalem, according to verse 9. God said he would pile the wood so high that the fire of judgment would be so hot. The contents of the pot, he says, were to be cooked, then charred, according to verse 10. Poured on the fire and finally burned away like the impurities in the refining process, in verse 11. The pouring out of the contents on the fire and the burning of the leftovers uh, is a demonstration to show that there's no hope for Jerusalem. And for sure, destruction is going to come. So this refining process started with the first exile in 605 B.C., and it continued with the second siege of Jerusalem in 597 B.C. And again at the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. 
So this message was an introduction to the prophecy of chapter 36, verses 22 through 32. This message was an introduction to that prophecy that predicted a final cleansing in the end time after Israel has returned to the land, according to verses 11 and 12. And that, all that God did, you know, as we read through Ezekiel and all the gospel, I mean, all the Old Testament book, all that God did to restore the morality of the people through the ministry of the prophets, you know, who he said he sent many and he sent them early. He sent them to talk, to bring back and to restore morality to the people. It didn't have any effect on them, according to verse 13. So God told them that the time to do something about that was now. And he said in verse 14 that he was not going to hold back his judgment and that he wasn't going to have any pity on them and he wasn't going to change his mind. God particularly condemned Judah for their cold-hearted lack of, the, uh, of concern for the sacredness of human life. Their lack of concern for human life was obvious in the increase of their crimes. And the harsh judgment sent by God on Judah should be more than enough warning to people today who have the same cold-hearted lack of concern for the value of human life, both of the born and the unborn. Now in verses 15 through 27, the second part of the chapter, it covers the parable of the death of Ezekiel's wife. The last part of this chapter is the word of judgment against Judah and Jerusalem. And it was undoubtedly the most painful thing that Ezekiel had to experience. Let's begin with verses 15 through 17. Also, Ezekiel says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, behold, I take away from you, notice, the desire of your eyes with one stroke. Yet you shall neither mourn nor weep nor shall tears run down. Sigh in silence, make no mourning for the dead, bind your turban on your head and put your sandals on your feet, do not cover your lips and do not eat man's bread of sorrow. This parable, on the occasion of the death of Ezekiel's wife, you know, when you read it at face value, it raises the question of how how God wants us to understand the love of God as it related to Ezekiel and especially the death of his wife. Because it makes, us look, it makes it look like when you read it at face value, it, 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 it makes it look like God committed a senseless, heartless act of cruelty himself in taking the life of Ezekiel's wife. Notice in 16, he says, I'm going to take the desire of your eyes. Did God do this just to make a point? Because you see, no matter how you try to answer this question, it involves a great struggle with the meaning and with the purpose and the existence of suffering in the world. Suffering, many, uh, suffering may at times serve a godly purpose in our lives. God may use suffering to test our faith. 1 Peter 1, 7 and 1 Peter 4, 12 through 13. God may use suffering to strengthen our faith. Matthew 15, 28, Acts 6, 5 and Romans 4, 19 through 20. God may use suffering to discipline and educate us. Hebrews 12, 7. God may use suffering to humble us. 
Deuteronomy 8, 2 through 3, and 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 9. God may use suffering to purify us. Matthew, uh, Malachi 3, 3, and 1 Peter 1, 7. God may use suffering to enable us to help others who are suffering. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 7. And God may use suffering to show the suffering of God's grace in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and Philippians 1, 23. Listen to what Peter said in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. He says, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, notice, if need be, that's it, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness, uh, here's why we suffer it many times, that the genuineness, genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We, have to, we are being prepared today. We're being prepared here for glory. And we always have to remember everything that God plans and everything that God does here is in preparation for what He has in store for us up there. In heaven. He's preparing us for the life and the service that's still to come in eternity. And nobody yet knows yet all that's in store for us in heaven. But we do know this. Life today is a school where God trains us for our future ministry in eternity. And this explains why we have trials in our lives. They're some of the tools that God uses. They're the training manuals in the school of Christian experience and brokenness. Peter used the words trials in the scripture that I just read. He used the word trials instead of tribulations or persecutions because he was dealing with the general problems that Christians face as they're surrounded by unbelievers. And he shared several facts about trials there in 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7. He tells us there, the trials meet needs. In verse 6, the phrase, notice it said, if need be. These words tell us that there are special times when God knows that we need to go through trials. And sometimes trials discipline us when we've disobeyed God's will. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, 67, he says, I used to wander off until you disciplined me. But now I closely follow your word. At other times, trials prepare us for spiritual growth. Or even they help us to stop us from sinning. 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 9, Paul said this, To keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. Now, we don't always know the need that's being met. You know, we don't know what, what needed in our life needs to be met. We don't know what needs to be done in our life. But whatever it is and whatever God does or whatever he allows or arranges or designs for my life, we can trust God to know and to do what's best for us. Because our welfare is important to him. And it's in his heart. Trials are also assorted. You know, like we looked about the armor, those fiery darts, they come in, in different ways and from different directions. Well, the trials, they're assorted. They, all, they come in all shapes and sizes. 
Peter said, notice in verse 6 of 1 Peter 4, he said, they were various. They were various. Which literally means, the word literally means multicolored. He said varied. It means multicolored. No matter what color our day may be, God has grace enough to meet that need. And you know what? We must never think that because we have, you know, overcome one kind of a trial, that we're going to automatically win them all. Trials are varied, Peter said. They're multicolored, and God matches the trial to our strength and to our needs. And here's the neat thing. God is faithful. And in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, Paul said, He will not allow that temptation to be more than you can stand. Peter says in, that, in, the, in the 1 Peter 4, 6 through 7, he said, trials are hard. They're hard. Peter wasn't suggesting that we take a careless attitude about trials because God is there and, and he knows what we need and he's not going to let us go through more than we can handle. So we just, ah, no big deal. God's, God's got me covered. He does. But he wasn't suggesting we have kind of a, a, a careless attitude about our trials. They're no big deal. Because this would be deceiving. Because he said trials produce what he called grievous. Grieved. And that word means our trials at times cause us heaviness, distress, sadness, and sorrow. And they do. The word grievous means to experience grief or pain. And our trials do that to us at times. So to say that our trials aren't painful is to make, it, make them even worse. To pretend like they're not painful and not grievous. We as Christians have to face the fact that they are difficult experiences in life. And you know, and, and, and not to put on a happy face just to look more spiritual and I'm tough and I can handle it. The thermostat and the timer that controls the heat of the fiery furnace is controlled by God. Remember that. He doesn't turn up the heat and then walk off and take care of business somewhere else. He knows just how much heat you can take in the furnace. And he knows how long you need that heat. And you know what? His hand is always on the thermostat. Now, if we rebel with the trials that come our ways, with the difficult times, with the circumstances that are hard, if we rebel against him, he just might have to add a little more heat <laughs> And keep it on for a little longer than we'd like to. Until we learn. Remember what happened in school if you failed the test? Come on back, we're going to do it again. Until you get it right. God's the same idea. Until you submit. He's not going to allow. He, he, until we submit, that's when he, he'll, he'll turn down the heat. Turn it off. But he won't allow us to suffer one minute longer than we need to. The important thing is that we learn the lesson that he wants to teach us. That we bring glory to him and to him alone. And I've said this many times and I'm going to continue to say it. You know, it, 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 instead of praying, Lord, get me out of this. Pray, Lord, what do you want me to get out of this? Peter showed us this truth by referring to the refiner. No refiner would deliberately waste the precious metal 
that, he, that he's refining. He won't deliberately destroy that precious metal that he's refining. So in that fiery furnace, God's not going to destroy the precious metal that we are to him. The refiner would put it in the furnace just long enough to remove the cheap and useless impurities in the metal. Then he'd pour out the purified metal and he'd make a beautiful vessel out of it. That's what he's doing with us. He wants to purify us and he's going to purify us and make us precious metal so that he can make a beautiful and valuable vessel out of us. It's been said that the eastern refiner kept the metal in the furnace, burning away the impurities until he could see his face reflected in it. And that's what God wants to see, our reflection of him. And that can only happen when he removes all the impurities in our life, all the, the faults and all the defects. It's the same with our Lord as that ancient refiner, eastern refiner. Jesus keeps us in the furnace of suffering until we reflect the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ. And the important point is that this glory is not fully revealed until Jesus returns for his church. And our trying experiences, our testing experience, those things that we go through, those experiences today are preparing us for glory for tomorrow. So that when we see Jesus, we will bring praise and honor and glory to him. If we've been faithful in the sufferings of this life. And this explains why Peter said, rejoice. Rejoice in these things. Rejoice with suffering. While we might not be able to rejoice as we look around in our trials, but we can rejoice looking ahead at what this is going to do for me. Because Hebrews 12, 11 says, afterward, after the chastisement, after whatever God is using to train me, he says, afterward there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. When Jesus was here on earth, he lived by faith. The mystery of his divine and human nature, I mean, because he was 100% God and 100% man, if his nature, divine nature and human nature, is way too deep for us to, to totally understand. But we do know this, that he had to trust his Father in heaven as he lived day by day. The, the, the writer of Hebrews quotes Jesus saying in Hebrews 2.13, I will put my trust in him. He trusted in the Father. The fact that Jesus prayed proves that he lived by faith. And Hebrews 12, 2 says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, knows who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Now that's not saying, oh, he just loved the cross and all that he saw. No, he, no, he knew what was going to happen beyond the cross. After the cross, after he had finished his mission on the cross. And our Lord Jesus endured way more than any of the heroes of faith in chapter, uh, Hebrews chapter 11 ever suffered. So Jesus is a perfect example for us to follow. He endured the cross. And the cross involves shame, suffering, 
the opposition of sinners coming against him, and even for a while, the rejection of the Father. Father, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, Jesus suffered for all the sins of the whole world, and yet he endured the cross. He finished the work that the Father gave him to do. In Jesus' battle against sin, he shed his own blood for us. What was it that enabled our Lord to endure the cross? And always remember, during his ministry on earth, Jesus never used his divine powers for his own personal needs. Satan tried to get him to do it, but Jesus, no. It was Jesus' faith that enabled him to endure to the end. Jesus said in Matthew 10, he who endures to the end will be saved. You see, enduring to the end is the evidence one is saved. It's the evidence of our faith. <clears throat> he kept the eye of faith on the joy that was set before him. He was looking beyond the cross, as I said. From Psalm 16, 8 through 10, he knew that he would come out of the tomb alive, and he knew what it was going to do for you and me. Acts chapter 2, verses 25 through 27, reading this from the Living Bible. I know the Lord is always with me. I know the Lord is with me and he's helping me. God's mighty power supports me. No wonder my heart is filled with joy and my tongue shouts his praises. For I know all will be well with me in death. You will not leave my soul in hell or let my body, the body of your holy son, decay. Peter referred to this messianic psalm in his sermon at Pentecost. And in that psalm, David speaks about the fullness of joy in the presence of the Father. And from Psalm 110, verse 1 and verse 4, Jesus knew that he was going to be exalted to heaven in glory. That's what Jesus had his eye on. That's what enabled him to have joy in enduring the cross. It would include Jesus fulfilling the Father's will. It included his resurrection. It included his exaltation and his joy in presenting you and I, believers, to the Father in glory. That's what Jesus had his eye on, not the cross. What was going to happen after the cross? All through the letter to the Hebrews, the writer emphasized the importance of the future hope. Again, it's looking beyond the present circumstances. And as Paul said to Timothy, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Just like the refiner tests the gold to see if it's pure or counterfeit, the trials of our life test our faith to prove its sincerity. Warren Wiersbe says, a faith that can't be tested can't be trusted. A lot of professing Christians have a false faith, and it will be revealed in the trials of life. Because many times they abandon their faith when the going gets tough. Oh, I tried walking with God. I tried being a Christian, but it didn't work for me. Because they went through trials. They went through difficult times. Proving they, they really had no faith at all. It's easy to have faith when the good times are rolling, but when they come, man, that's, that's, the, that's the real test. And that's why God allows it. He knows our faith. He wants us to see what our faith is made out of. God told Ezekiel about the soon coming death of his wife. And then God used the occasion to prepare his people for judgment. 
Now, the passage is not saying that God put her to death as an object lesson. But like I said from the beginning, it may look like it when you read it at face value, but he didn't do that. God would not randomly take the life of Ezekiel's wife just to shed light on his word to an unrepentant people. But he would speak in the midst of the, of the expected suffering of life to show that he knows and that he cares and he will use this suffering as a basis for, for, for a hope of new life. The new nation, purified and restored, could not start taking shape until the old ways are gone. See, Jesus can't, God's kingdom can't come until our kingdom goes. The new ways can't begin, the new life can't begin until the old life is gone. And this was an important part of Jesus' message. We live by death and we gain by losing. This is the message of the cross. Paul said it, it, the message of the cross was foolishness to those who are perishing. And it was a stumbling block to the Jews. But the power of God and wisdom of God was to all who believe. So it seems like Ezekiel had married a lovely young Israelite girl and they really loved each other. But while they were in captivity, she became sick and died. You can imagine how heartbreaking it was to Ezekiel. But again, he, he had to do what God told him to do. God revealed to Ezekiel that his wife was going to die suddenly and unexpectedly in verse 15. It shows how close the relationship was by referring to her as the desire of his eyes in verse 16. She would be taken suddenly. He said in verse 15, with one stroke. That's what it means, that she would be taken with one stroke. She would be taken suddenly. It wouldn't be drawn out suffering or a long-term illness. She was taken suddenly. The word one stroke usually just, is, just describes sudden death in battle or from plague or disease. Here it probably means that she caught some disease that was sudden and deadly. It took her life. God told Ezekiel that when his wife died, and this is the strange part, he was not to show any visible signs of mourning. And how hard would that be? And funeral rites during these times usually included tearing one's clothes, a sign of mourning, removing your shoes or turban, shaving your head, putting dust and ashes on the head. That was all signs of mourning. And the mourner's, would, uh, the mourner's uh, face would be covered. And there would be other mourners and there would be friends and even some professional mourners that would be hired to wail at the funeral for the wailing of the dead. The family sat or rolled in dust as a sign of their grief. And sometimes mourning was also accompanied by fasting. The family would eat only what was called mourner's bread that was supplied by friends or neighbors. But God said to Ezekiel, he was not allowed to show any of these normal responses, to, to, but was to, he said in verse 17, sigh and silence, Ezekiel, for your wife. Sigh and silence. Look at verses 18 through 24 now. So I spoke to the people in the morning, and at evening my wife died, and the next morning I did as I was commanded. And the people said to me, Will you not tell us what these things signify to us, that, be, that you behave so? Then I answered them. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Speak to the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will profane my sanctuary, 
your arrogant boast, the desire of your eyes, the delight of your soul, and the sons and your sons and daughters from whom you left, uh, whom you left behind, shall fall by the sword. And you shall do as I have done. You shall not cover your lips, nor eat man's bread of sorrow. Your turban shall be on your heads, and your sandals on your feet. You shall neither mourn nor weep, but you shall pine away in your iniquities and mourn with one another. Thus Ezekiel is assigned to you according to all that he has done, you shall do. And when this comes, you shall know that I am the Lord. So in the morning, Ezekiel gave this unusual message <clears throat> to the people. And the same day, that evening, his wife died. The next morning, Ezekiel did just as God had told him to do. He showed no signs of emotion. The circumstances may mean that Ezekiel's wife was already sick at the time God told Ezekiel that his wife was going to die soon. Ezekiel's unusual behavior no doubt caused the people to ask Ezekiel, Hey, Ezekiel, you know, what's going on? You know, tell, tell us, what, what do these things mean? What do these things signify? How, how is it that you're behaving this way? What does all of this mean, Ezekiel? What is it that you're trying to tell us? The question is strange, because with it, the people unknowingly spoke of their own deaths. The fall of Jerusalem resulted in the defilement and the destruction of the temple. Jerusalem suddenly died, like Ezekiel's wife, and with it, the temple and the worship died. The temple was described as the delight of their eyes in verses 20 through 21, as Ezekiel's wife was the, desire, the delight and desire of his eyes. The same words used to describe Ezekiel's wife. And besides the loss of the temple, they lost another delight, sons and daughters, according to verse 21. Like Ezekiel, those in Jerusalem wouldn't be able to mourn because they would immediately be taken away as captives to Babylon. For the captives to mourn could be seen as rebellious. So they, like Ezekiel, would be forced to sigh in silence. Verse 17. And when this happened, it was to be a confirmation of the truth of God's word and the integrity of Ezekiel. Let's close with verses 25 through 27. And you, son of man, will it not be in the day when I take from them their stronghold, their joy and their glory, the desire of their eyes, and that on which they set their minds, their sons and their daughters, that on that day one who escapes will come to you uh, to let your heart hear it with your ears. On that day your mouth will be open to him who has escaped, and you shall speak and no longer be mute. Thus you will be assigned to them, and they shall know that I am the Lord. So all previous restrictions on Ezekiel, beginning back in chapter 3, would be removed with the fall of Jerusalem. And from that point on, when Ezekiel's message changed from mostly judgment to restoration and hope, he would be free to move among the people and to relate to his messages. There was a significant word placed after the message of judgment against Judah and Jerusalem because it predicted the messages of hope and restoration that started in chapter 33. So this prophecy of a fugitive from fallen Jerusalem and the end of Ezekiel's silence is fulfilled in chapter 33 in expectation of the additional messages of restoration in chapter 33. So God, here, here's the thing again with Ezekiel's, this, this occasion with Ezekiel's wife, God is not the author of personal tragedy. And it's important that we understand this. 
but he does often use these experiences, these tragedies in our life. He uses them as special opportunities. He uses them as special open doors to reach people to come to know that he is the Lord. Having the right knowledge and understanding of God tells us how great his grace, mercy, love, and blessings are. But also his wrath and his firmness and his determination to deal with sin that brought death into the world. Father, we thank you so much. Father, for this, this chapter, Lord, this illuminating chapter, Father, of how you use the tragedies in our life, God. But that's a, a, a whole different study, Lord. Can there really be a tragedy in a life who's, who's controlled by God, who designs and allows things to happen in our life? But nonetheless, we still call them tragedies. And Father, we thank you for the testings. We thank you for the circumstances. We thank you for the dark hours that we spend, Lord. Though at the time we're, we're in them, we really don't think about thanking you. We just think about getting through. But Father, you've promised that you will get us through, Lord. So we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace, God. We thank you for all that you do, even again, in these difficult, difficult times, God. And Lord, things are going to get darker before they get brighter, God. May we keep our eyes on you, fixed on you, God. May we understand, God, that our welfare is your, is your great concern, God. We are important to you. Father, we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.